one thing I, I draw from your work and from Danny's is that a sense that stories are always wrong. These narrative accounts that we give are not only always wrong, they're always misleading because they're both kind of comforting and persuasive and we like to tell stories, we like to hear stories. Once we've heard the story, you know, we now understand the situation and we're done. And uh, it, it's uh, pathological, <laughs> our love of stories. In this sense of trying to be accurate about things that might happen. Yeah. Or trying to understand the, the levels of what's going on. Biology, we encounter this all the time. So many kind of simplistic stories usually mm -hmm. relating to evolution. And you look a little deeper and it just isn't that simple ever. Right. It's a, it's a common debate in history, philosophy of science, how loosely or tightly coupled are um, explanations and expl explanation and prediction. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly possible in the history of science to identify situations in which uh, we think we have pretty darn good explanations, but they don't give as much predictive power. Um, plate tectonics, uh, earthquakes, a uh, good example, evolutionary biology. Um, and then there certainly are situations where we think the explanations are preposterous, uh, the explanations are preposterous, uh, but they did a pretty good job predicting. So uh, Babylonian Ptolemaic astronomy, uh, they did a pretty good job with celestial motions. They had no idea that stars were thermonuclear reactors. Um, so there, there are cases where they, they can be, they're, they're, where they're loosely coupled. I, but I, do, I would not want to take the strong position that they're totally uncoupled. I, I think the coupling, the, the strength of the coupling of ex explanation and prediction is going to vary from domain to domain. The key thing is that we're aware that they're not as tight. The, the, I guess the key, key caution that emerges from Danny's work and others is, is that we, 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 you don't want, the, 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 we're too prone to the default assumption that explanation and prediction are, are tightly coupled. Therefore, a useful corrective is to emphasize the situations where they're loosely coupled, and we're going to wind up perhaps somewhere in the middle. Um, but there's another dimension to it, which is that the very act of taking evidence and using that to adjust your prediction mm -hmm. demands a framework of explanation. So, so you have an operative story yes. that you think, okay, well, this is how Hillary's going to get elected, or. Mm -hmm. And, and so, if you look at the failure of the intelligence community in, in the case of the WMD, I think it was a failure of storytelling, not so much a failure of evidence interpretation. But nobody told me, retrospectively, you can tell a story of Saddam deliberately pretending like he had mm -hmm. weapons of mass destruction, or a story about his generals lying to him. Or, none of those stories were told beforehand. Had those stories been told beforehand, the evidence could have been interpreted differently. Right. Yeah. The same evidence could have been interpreted differently. Yeah. So in fact, I think that that's partly the point I was saying about the job of the intelligence community storytelling is providing those frameworks in which you can interpret evidence. Right. right. So you want red team storytellers. And 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 the CIA and the, and the official that's part of their official operating procedure is to have that. In the case of Iraq WMD, that process broke down. Um, but it, 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 and you had, you had the situation where the director of the CIA did say to the President of the United States, it's a slam dunk, Mr. President. Um, it's a slam dunk to convince the American public. That's what George Tenet says. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what he did say. We have well, recognized that. Well, that's not what everyone says. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. George Hennett thinks he was blamed by the White House unfairly. Right? The, the White House leaked it out of context. Yeah. 
But it is fair to say that even put slam dunk aside, uh, the US intelligence community was sending out a very decisive affirmation that Iraq did have an active weapons of mass destruction program. That, they were, that, that, was, that was manifestly true. And um, I would ask you to entertain the following counterfactual, that if the US intelligence community had institutionalized forecasting tournaments, uh, would they have been more, well, if they had institutionalized forecasting tournaments, I think you would have created an organizational culture in which they would be much more reticent about ever using the term slam dunk, whether at the level of PR or at the level of actuality. Because slam dunk means 100%. 100% means I'm willing to give you infinite odds. Uh, that's quite extraordinary. Well, um, promise to eat your heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, but, but it, it, there, there are some scoring systems in, in probability scoring that, that you say, if you, make, you make, attach a probability of one to something and it doesn't happen, that's, that is in, that's reputational death. Right? It's, it's infinite. <laughs> the Breyer score, which is, you know, we talk about in, in, in the book and in, in the handout, is, is a more le it's more lenient toward people who are extremely overconfident. You can eventually recover from an error like that, but it takes, it takes a while to do it. Um, and it's an interesting question how punitive you want to be. But I'll ask you to entertain the counterfactual that if they had institutionalized <laughs> forecasting tournaments inside the IC, when they were engaging in those deliberations, um, would they have been at least a little more reticent? And I, I, I am inclined to think that that uh, counterfactual is correct. Now, how much more reticent would they have had to have been to have persuaded Congress uh, not to go along? Um, Congress was getting the message that it was a slam dunk from the administration. And that was being communicated to the UN. It was being communicated elsewhere. Uh, if, if, the, if the IC had a formal mechanism like a forecasting tournament, uh, um, and the probability emanating from that was, was more modest. Now, I, th I think virtually every intelligence agency pre-invasion pre did think that Saddam did have some kind of active weapon of mass destruction program. So I'm not, I'm not saying that the ex-ante best probability estimate of Iraqi WMD pre-2003 was near, anywhere near zero. I think it was over 50%. I, think it, I don't think it was 100%, but I think it was somewhere between 50 and 100, my 75, 80. Um, you know, Bob Jervis, who does a lot of these postmortems with the intelligence community, um, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what Bob would say that probability would be, but um, I think he would agree with the characterization that the um, that they went they went too far. Um, they, 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 they didn't the, the brakes weren't working on the inference process. The, the, the brakes that they had were supposed to be there on the inference process weren't working. Uh, now, would a forecasting tournament have saved us a multi-trillion dollar mistake that could have cost tens of thousands of lives? I don't know. Um, uh, but I would say this, that if you have a tool that can increase the accuracy of probability estimates as much as has, has been demonstrated in the IARPA tournaments, if you have a tool of that sort that can increase the ac accuracy of probability estimates by 30, 40, 50, 60 percent, um, it's worth investing uh, many millions of dollars even to reduce to a small degree the probability of multi-trillion dollar mistakes. That, that's just that's a straight expected value. Yeah, probability is not on its own a decent basis for a decision for the simple reason that there are things like the precautionary principle, which might mean that um, a, you know, a 5% chance of 
of Iraq possessing WMDs might be sufficient to justify invasion. But Cheney went further. He said one Any non-zero. Yeah. Any, yeah, that probably is. <laughs> right. Um, although, obviously, the, the Bush administration would have been very unhappy with uh, intelligence community that offered a 1% probability of WMD. That's um, not politically saleable. Um, Interestingly, what was the point of the super gun if they didn't possess um, WMD? I mean, why would you invest in this hugely expensive and complicated uh, gun which they were trying to build uh, only to deliver conventional ballistics? So that, I mean, <laughs> uh, they they may have had some ultimate intention of of, yeah. of, re, of re, restarting their chemical weapons program. Iraq was re, was pretty resource starved, uh, and they were they were being watched a lot and harassed a lot, and it was it was difficult for them to do very much. Um, How do you deal with the uh, reflexivity of predictions hmm. in the world <laughs> where? Um, you know, particularly in things like financial markets, where people believing that something's going to happen makes it happen. Well, analysts sometimes raise this issue inside the intelligence community because when they say something is probable and they, they take it to the Defense Department, the Defense Department could make it less probable, yes. So there is the problem of um, predictions being self-negating. Is that, is that the specific? Or, or, or well, we were thinking of self-negating in this context. but Or self-confirming. Okay, well, so it could, it could go either way. Um, and um, I think the correct approach to that is uh, what IARPA has done, which is to pose these as conditional. So if we do X or Y, how likely is this to happen? Rather than simply asking a question about how likely is this to happen? I mean, I guess the, the, the problem I'm raising is that someone like Tom Friedman making an argument on behalf of some action we should take. Uh, stands a material chance of actually increasing the odds of what he's saying may happen. Um, right, there, there's a huge power disparity between the people who make predictions in the world and those who have more power uh, can actually actualize some of the things they're predicting. So. Right, so, but journalists have some, some, some degree of, of influence there, but obviously the people inside the government who are, are much closer to the, to the mechanisms of power, so the self-negating, self-fulfilling prophecy problem is more pronounced there. Um, uh, I, I don't think there's ever going, there's, there's no perfect solution to this because of the counterfactual problem. And we don't know what would have happened if we'd done the other thing. But you can partly address the issue by posing the question where you think there's a potential for self-fulfilling or self-negating mechanism, um, asking people conditional on US policy going down A or B, how likely is this or that. Um, now we'll still have the counterfactual problem, we'll come back to that later. Um, but it, um, I think it's a, it's a good start. I, I just want to bring up one thing on this. I, I think I think our lives have been completely affected by an example of this. I think um, Gordon Moore's prediction of Gordon Moore's law, which if you read the original paper, was based on five data points, one of which was null, and four were just over <laughs> a two-year period. And he wrote this curve, drew, drew the, he extrapolated it for 10 years, and then the industry said, ah, that's what's going to happen, and everyone worked that straight line for the next 30 or 40 years and completely transformed their world was exactly an example of a prediction changing the outcome. Because without that, I don't think the, I don't think Intel and all the other chip makers would have known what to aim for, but that told them what to aim for. Yeah. 
And, and that illustrates, it, it, so we're going to complicate things more rapidly than I thought we would. But that, that illustrate comes back to, I think, Danny Hillis's point about explanation and, and how intertwined explanation and prediction are. Um, Im imagine that people hadn't um, believed the, the Moore article. They thought, well, that's, that's pretty far-fetched. And they, 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 they didn't make this concerted effort. And maybe, but 100 years later, someone discovers it, and things take off. Um, Moore's law, the, 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 the scientific underpinnings of Moore's law would be correct, but the, it, would be, it, would be off, it would be radically off on timing, right? Um, and that's an in, a very interesting conundrum that we encounter, um, which is that um, some forecasters uh, can be radically wrong in the short term, uh, but um, radically right in the long term. Um, and you, you, need, you need mechanisms for uh, uh, factoring that possibility into your into your decision calculus if you're an organization relying on forecasting tournaments for inputs, probability inputs into decisions. Uh, we, we have a number of fun examples of, of, of uh, situations in which people, very opinionated people, um, offer um, interesting uh, defenses for um, the uh, inaccuracy of their short-term predictions. They'll say, well, you know, I predicted the Soviet Union would continue, and it almost did, and it would have, but for the fact that those idiot coup plotters were too drunk, and bum, 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 and we call that the close call counterfactual defense. And what I predicted almost happened. It didn't happen, but it almost happened. So you should give me some credit for being almost right, rather than derogating me for being wrong. Uh, there's the off-on-timing defense. Um, one of the most and, 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 uh, and sometimes the off-on-timing defense really is pretty specious. I mean, George Soros famously said that the markets can stay liquid longer than you can stay solvent uh, when people complain about uh, bubbles and so forth and, and mis mispricing. When, um, so, but, but a, a particularly interesting example of this was uh, actually I reported in my 2005 book, Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It? How Can We Know? And a, a CIA analyst was reading that book and wrote to me um, last year um, and she said, you know, uh, Professor Tadlock, does this make you change your mind about hedgehogs? Um, so in the book, we, we talk about foxes and hedgehogs. The, the, hedgehog, uh, the fox, foxes know many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Um, and the hedgehogs come in many flavors in expert political judgment. There are free market hedgehogs. There are socialist hedgehogs. There are boomster hedgehogs. There are doomster hedgehogs. They, they come in a variety of ideological complexions. This particular hedgehog was an ethno-nationalist hedgehog. What do I mean by that? And what Daniel Patrick Moynihan says of that, uh, it, it is that he thinks that the world is kind of seething with these primordial ethnic national identifications, and existing nation states are going to be rupturing all over the place in the next 50, 60 years, which he wrote in 1980. Um, and then things like Yugoslavia and Soviet Union and so forth happen, and the Moynihan views start to look like prescient. Uh, but okay, so this ethno-nationalist hedgehog writing, uh, being, uh, offering uh, some uh, forecasts in 1992 anticipates that by 1997 there's going to be a war between Russia and the Ukraine. The Russians are particularly obsessed with Crimea, but they're also going to see some eastern provinces of the Ukraine where there's a pro-Russian population, a somewhat pro-Russian population, and they're going to use oil and gas as a weapon, and they're going, you know, they're, they're going to do things to the Ukrainians that more or less happened in 2014. So we're 17 years off. Uh, the hedgehog gets a terrible accuracy score in the five-year time frame between 1992 and 1997. What do you think of that? Um, that? That is an interesting complication. That is something we can't 
uh, sweep under the rug. Uh, so we, we, we do need to, um, we, we need to think more systematically about how short-term and long-term foresight are related to each other. And that is one of the major focuses of this, what I thought would be the second session, uh, where we would talk about um, both, uh, the importance of the questions we ask. Uh, for this second session, be interested in how you're thinking about hedgehogs has changed since 1905. 1905. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that old. Right? <laughs> I like to think of, I, I, here's my, my, my thinking has evolved since 2005, that's certainly true. Um, I, I like to think of forecasting tournaments as uh, intellectual ecosystems. And that require different types of creatures existing in reciprocal patterns of interdependence. Um, the foxes need hedgehogs. Um, the hedgehogs are very useful sources of information and insights. And the foxes are almost parasitic in some ways on hedgehogs. They use hedgehog ideas and they're, they're eclectic and they often combine, you know, I'll take this from this hedgehog and that from this one. And, um, so, um, I, I think they, there's a complementarity, just as a complementarity between Tom and Bill. Um, in question generation and answer generation forecasting tournaments. I think there's a complementarity between hedgehog and fox forecasters. Um, uh, the foxes are the ones looking for the deep parsimonious covering laws that capture uh, the underlying drivers of history. Um, the foxes kind of wonder whether history has any underlying drivers. Uh, it may just be, as one famous historian said, it's just history is just one damn thing after another. Um, so there's a, there's a tension there between those two, those, 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 those two views of history. And I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a productive dialectical tension, and uh, I, I would not wish it away. Uh, going back to the Obama story that, that you started, but it seems to say, it, I'm not sure whether improving probability estimates is going to make a difference, so long as the decision makers don't think that way. That is, that there is no demand, I think, or there is demand for perfect accuracy. I'm not sure how much demand there is for slightly improved accuracy. And, and the culture of decision making is in part affected by very oddly affected by the existence of hindsight, so that they live in a world in which people retrospectively will be sure that any action that didn't work was a mistake. And, and so when you live in that world and you face hindsight as a, as a reality, something that will happen to you, it's unclear but that does to your willingness to go on, on probabilities, because that's not what's going to happen to you. Right. Well, I did, I did say at the beginning you're somewhat more pessimistic <laughs> than, yeah. than I am. <laughs> but um, so, do you want to add to yeah, that? I just want to comment about people in positions of power, on average, have been luckier than average. Hmm. So they've made a lot of choices like to be, along the way to becoming president, some of which were um, disputed by their best advisors, and they were right, and their advisors were wrong. Uh, and so their known batting average has a substantial regression of the mean, which they tend not to account for. So they think that they're better judges, and they have good evidence for it, because they have been better judges. I think that's a beautiful point. <laughs> um,
Another thing is uh, Obama saying it's 50-50, I think is likely to mean something different than 50%. It's likely to mean, so I, we don't really know. And he's actually made, so the, for him the question is, do I uh, order a attack on this building? Yeah. And of course, we know he did. Um, and he has some threshold. You might say that he has some threshold of um, probability that he would choose to act. And, um, and he's basically decided that it's above that threshold. Right. And that he, when he says 50-50, he basically is trying to communicate that, well, we, this is not settled, and he's going to have to take responsibility for the choice. But I don't know that he would actually, if he, had, if he actually had to uh, push him toward odds, he wouldn't say he would, he would probably agree that three to one is a good bet. Yeah. What would be required for effective policy making would be for the, for the decision maker to formulate the threshold in terms of probability. That is, when the probability yeah. exceeds that much, we will move. And that is nowhere inside in the culture that there is a probabilistic structure. So for, for these things to work, this is what's going to be needed. Of course, they don't want to say in advance that if you tell me it's more than 35%, I'll... No, if I believe that it's more than 35%, I will attack. Oh, this is a very useful uh, exchange here. Um, so just to come to what Bob says about what, what Barack Obama might have meant by 50-50, absolutely right. Uh, that 50-50 means something uh, different to ordinary people and ordinary discourse than it does to probability theorists. Um, um, a, um, um, Baruch Vishoff, who's a former student of, of Don, Danny, uh, famous for his work on hindsight bias, to which, we'll, which we will talk in a moment, <laughs> um, had started one of his papers many years ago with a cute quote from a jockey uh, who said that there are, there are eight wonderful colts in this race, and each of them has a 50-50 chance of winning. <laughs> so I think that bears out what you're saying. <laughs> um, now, but to go to go to back to to to, to Danny's points, uh, the, what I what I the more pessimistic outlook here. Um, first, I don't think there, you're right. There is not a huge demand among decision makers for internal forecasting tournaments. There's some demand for it now, but there's not a certainly not a, there's certainly no tsunami. Um, that, but you could argue that's because uh, you, you, there's no effective demand for something that you don't know exists. If you don't think that it's possible to be, make more granular probability estimates, you're not going to be demanding them. The other point about hindsight bias um, is, is, is very real, but forecasting tournaments are, in a way, a partial antidote to hindsight bias because they provide a clear documented record of what the ex-ante probabilities were. So they would reduce the potential for that kind of distortion. Um, but it's certainly a, it's an, it's a tough persuasion job. Another thing that kind of goes back to your first story is what a totally rational decision maker would want would be more than a probability, but it also want a confidence interval. And in some sense, that may be what the difference is between all your experts telling you different probabilities and all your experts telling you the same, is that you're guessing from that a kind of confidence interval. Yeah. Yeah. 
But you, 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 it's, it's certainly possible in the, in the IRPA tournament to provide confidence intervals. That, that's not, not yeah. I mean, the, the IRPA tournament was set up as a horse race. It was set up, uh, there were five university-based research teams competing to generate as accurate probability estimates as possible. And they could use whatever trick in the book they could come up with to achieve that. So tournaments incentivize people to cross the usual academic boundaries. You, you, know, you, you, you might think the trick lies in cognitive ability of forecasters. You might think it lies in some uh, extremizing algorithm. You might think it lies in teaming. You might think it lies in training. You might think it lies in, in networking. All sorts of different social science, behavioral science, statistical perspectives were brought to bear. Um, and certain things turned out to work better than others within the context of this tournament. Um, but confidence intervals are certainly a, 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 a plausible product that comes I, up. I guess what I'm saying is if Obama was playing poker and he knew the odds were this, that he probably would make his decision on probability. That's a case yeah. where okay. he sort of believes in the probability. But this wasn't the situation in which he kind of believed in the probabilities. He thought this was more like the intelligence flight kind of yeah. Yeah, no, I know, I, 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 I know what you're saying. And, and that comes back to this, this, that's this thing here. What are the limits of probabilistic reasoning? And he, he, he's saying it lies outside. Now, did, okay, let's just talk about that for a second. Um, it, it, were there comparison classes he could have used to, to judge? So Osama was hardly the first terrorist the US was going after. Uh, there were many previous terrorism hunts. Now, Osama was, of course, the big, the big catch, but it wasn't as though there weren't many precedents for planning Navy, Navy SEAL operations against suspected terrorists in Afghanistan and Pakistan. There was actually a, a substantial number of them. Uh, so you, you, you could argue that there was a, a, a base rate or comparison class that could be a base, uh, that, that, that could inform, even if, you, even if you were a devout frequentist and you don't like Bayesian subjectivist statistics, you, you, could, you could have constructed at least some kind of rough comparison class for that. Granularity that you brought up in terms of do you believe then that 100 is sort of the best number of units? Because you were mentioning in the book that a lot of people, of course, use like the base 10 or maybe the 5, 95%, but that the super forecasters will actually adjust within 1%, 93% chance, right? So, but my question is, especially for ordinary people who may use just five units as sort of very unlikely or not, you know, do you have a sense of what would be the best? Or do you think 100 is the best sort of number of units? Oh heavens, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a general answer to that, to that, to that question. Um, I, I think the fact that the super forecasters in aggregate were able to make uh, 20 or plus you, you, distinctions along the probability scale is an interesting fact. I don't think they can do that for all questions. I think some questions they are, are more amenable to that than other questions are. Um, so I don't think there's a generic off-the-shelf answer about how many degrees of uncertainty is possible to distinguish. Um, the collective wisdom of the super forecasters, though, is going to be more granular than the wisdom of any individual super forecaster, uh, as the collective wisdom of a prediction market would be more granular than any, any, any given market participant. So there, there is heightened granularity uh, along, along that uh, dimension. Um, but. Uh, there is no single number 
uh, and it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's something you discover when you do forecasting tournaments. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the interesting discoveries of this tournament is possible to be more granular than many psychologists thought it was possible to be. Uh, with many, many psychologists thought five to seven would probably be a, a plausible upper bound. Is it true that there will be much more granularity when you follow the, the changing probability of an event? So the first time yes. you get information is not graduate. Yes. And then you get added information and you can evaluate the size of the adjustment and that would make you very grand. That's exact and that's exactly what happens in the belief updating process. The, the and it's and the super forecasters are very well practiced belief updaters. But if if I'm, I make an initial guesstimate that the likelihood of Hillary being the next president of the United States is sixty percent, and then I, I um, you come across the State Department uh, inspector general thing. I say, hmm, well, that doesn't help. Probably doesn't hurt that much, given the information available. How much? Probably not very much. It certainly goes down, we certainly go down a bit, 58. <laughs> now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to pick that out if I were just coming at the problem fresh right after that State Department report. Um, but, but, but because I have this comparison point or anchor, I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting off that. And that's also true, I mean, just, just very, you know, take a, a very simple case where, where you're running out of time for an event to occur. And I said, well, I thought there was a 5% chance of more than five people dying in the East China Sea in a Sino-Japanese clash uh, by the end of the year. Hmm, time is running out, so now it's four, three, two, one. That's, just, that's a simple mathematical decay function, uh, absent any, any, any information about the events on the ground. I, see. I think there's, I find one problem with the probability in your forecast in that the most valuable forecast is one that's both early and relatively right. And the forecast that is, you know, the day before the event being relatively right yeah. is way less valuable than the one that was right a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. So is there any weighting of sort of being more probabilistically right early versus later? Yes, you get a lot. You do a lot better if you get if you're closer to the truth early on, because it's a cumulative Breyer score across time. So you're def you're definitely rewarded. Are you rewarded enough? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, there are many ways to do to score the accuracy of probability of judgments. You could give you could you could give even greater weight to to being accurate further off in time than the Breyer score does. Breyer score gives a lot of weight, but you could give even more, or you could punish people even more for saying 1.0 and it doesn't happen, or zero and it does happen, because you want to teach people not to use zero and one, dummy, because that's not what <laughs> Bayesian belief updating breaks down. Um, so you I realized my failure here is I didn't really understand Breyer score, and um, maybe this weekend I will. <laughs> right. um, well, again, you see these probability judgments over time. Uh, this is whether Putin's going to be the next president of the, of, of, uh, who's going to be inaugurated as president of Russia. And one of the, what, what you see is there, there is a group of forecasters who think it's going to be Putin right from the beginning of the launch of the question. And that was before Medvedev formally bowed out. I'm sorry, it's slide 25. 25. So this is, this is the probability of Putin being the next president of Russia in 2012. And these, the, the functions here are different, essentially they're different algorithms, uh, different ways of capturing the wisdom of the crowd uh, of our forecasters. So these were the things we were submitting to IARPA. They were the basis for winning the tournament. Um, and you can see there are some people who are right around 99% all the way. Now that means when there were those big demonstrations in Moscow in early 2012, they looked at those demonstrations and they said, eh. <laughs> 
I'm not gonna, we're not gonna change our mind. Now some of them did, you see some of them did go down. But, but others, others uh, the, 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 the winners, quote unquote, on this, viewed that as pseudo-diagnostic, not genuinely diagnostic information. Um, and then there's another the question lower down of relevance to the Eurozone was whether um, Mario Monte would, would vacate the office of Prime Minister of Italy before a certain target date. And you can see that's all over the map. That was a really wickedly difficult question. And, and, um, um, so uh, then there's another slide here that kind of captures this in a very schematic artificial way. It's slide 27, and it's the difference between pseudo-diagnostic and subtly diagnostic information. Mm -hmm. um, so the pseudo-diagnostic information would be, say, the, in, in, from the standpoint of those who think that Putin has an absolute lock on power in Russia, the fact that you had some large middle-class demonstrations in Moscow didn't move them very much at all. It did move the crowd. So you'd have the crowd, which would be the red line, taking a spike downward in response to the Moscow demonstrations. But the smart money, so to speak, would be, it would be pretty much monotonic toward, toward 1.0. Um, that, so that, that, that's where the smart money is, 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 is discounting the information. Then there are other situations where information is subtly diagnostic, where the smart money picks it up faster. So um, people who had some doubts about whether Medvedev might continue as the quote-unquote president of Russia, um, that's, they, 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 some of the more perceptive ones noted that Medvedev was not acting like a guy who was getting ready to campaign for office, that there had been a terrible plane crash, uh, a number of famous Russian hockey players were killed, it was another sign of a, a terrible safety record of, 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 of Rus Russian uh, transportation. Um, it was an opportunity for Medvedev to, to demagogue and you know, actually do things, you know, be really proactive uh, and, and appear to be doing things the way a politician would want to do. Uh, he didn't, so it's like the Sherlock Holmes story of the dog that didn't bark. Um, so that would be more subtly diagnostic. Uh, the smart money moves, moves on the subtly diagnostic, but the, but the crowd does not. Um, but the name of the game here is, is essentially to get to one really fast when the event is going to happen and to get towards zero really fast when the event is not going to happen. Uh, now, there are, are some events, such as the Monte case and a number of other questions in which the forecasts are really quite violently non-monotonic. Uh, they go up and down because the situation is really ambiguous and there are a lot of conflicting cues and, yeah. um, and, and everybody gets a bad Breyer score. Almost everybody. Uh, I think my editor knows this point that maybe um, there's not a big dissonance necessarily between the story and the prediction. Um, in some ways, uh, story is also an ideology. So I wonder, is it possible that um, hedgehogs and foxes aren't uh, really different species? It's more that um, hedgehogs can only hold one ideology in their head at once, while foxes can balance out lots of ideologies? And if so, have you looked at whether um, um, Foxes are actually, through um, psychological and mental testing, more capable of holding uh, multiple thoughts at once? Or is it just that um, they choose to do that while the hedgehogs um, have a capability but choose not to uh, balance it out? Yeah. So in the 2005 book, uh, where, we, right, where I talked about the hedgehog-fox tension in, in expert political judgment, um, I, I threw in this quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald that the test of a first-class mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in mind at the same time and retain the capacity to function. Um, 
I, so I think there's some truth to that. I think uh, people vary in the degree to which they're tolerant of dissonance, tolerant of ambiguity. Um, I, I think it is an important marker of creativity, um, uh, but. They're, 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 it's not always the case. I mean, some, sometimes hedgehogs are spectacularly right. Um, and I, I think when we were talking over dinner last night, I mentioned too that when you look at the people who had, had the, the Grand Slam home runs in forecasting tournaments, ten more to go to the hedgehogs. Uh, the foxes get the better batting average. Um, um, but if you're if you if you're very very tolerant of a lot of false positive predictions, <laughs> you might want to go with the hedgehog. Are there particular kinds of questions that the hedgehogs are better at? Um, I, I don't think we want to, because there are so many different types. Uh, cognitive style maps in various ways on ideology, right? So you, it, it's really talking about cognitive style ideology combinations. So what are the types of questions on which a hedgehog realist would do better or a hedgehog institutionalist? Hedgehog institutionalists, for example, have been very bullish on the, uh, on the, on the Eurozone. Yeah. I mean, they, they think that European politicians are so deeply committed to it that they're going to figure out a way to get through this mess. A lot of economists look at the numbers on Greece and they say, this is impossible. It's just not going to work. Um, and the institutionalists say, it's, you know, it, 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 it's going to, they'll, they'll make it work. There may not be overt debt forgiveness, but you can have covert debt forgiveness. And, and there, 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 there are ways of finessing these things. And, 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 uh, um, so, but that's another. It's, it's an interesting example, though, of where you have forecasters who have different theoretical orientations and perhaps different cognitive styles as well, um, coming at a forecasting problem in a quite different way. And um, certainly, I, I would say that Greece has lasted longer in the eurozone than many economists thought it it, it should or would. Um, and if you want to go really hedgehoggy, go to Martin Feldstein uh, in 1990 or so, when he said, this is really stupid. You're going to have a common currency for these countries at these very different levels of economic development? It's kind of like the United States and Mexico going into a currency union. You, you, you guys got to be kidding. Um, and, 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 and now 20... And then the euro, and, 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 and then, a, and then a few years later, the euro, the euro, the euro is at a dollar fifty to the dollar, and 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 the euro looks really strong, and people are saying, well, you know, so much for Feldstein. But again, this is you know, like the ethno-nationalist hedgehog on the Ukraine, or the Feldstein hedgehog on the euro, or Friedrich von Hayek in the 1930s uh, thought that the Soviet Union was finished. The Soviet Union couldn't even exist for that matter because central planning was such an abominably bad idea, but the Soviet Union managed to limp along until 1991. So um, you, 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 the linking short-term foresight and long-term foresight in, 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 in tournaments is one of the great intellectual challenges here. And, and um, um, I know Stuart and I, you, 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 we talked about it yesterday, and I, I continue to hold that view. Yeah, and what we're looking for is decade and century scale foresight, uh, along with the, the monthly and year and a half way. And it's uh, one of the things I think it's interesting that emerges is that the hedgehogs sometimes are tapping into, in a sense, deeper news or a deeper sense of the structure of what's driving things. And yes. um, quite rightly, foxes are kind of allergic to that because whenever they fall for it, they, they, <laughs> their averages go down. Um, and it may be another value, you know, hmm, you're 
creating more foxes by this whole process. That's good. You're converting some hedgehogs into foxes by this process. At least making a little more circumspect. People who go through these treatments, as I understand from Barbara, themselves becoming more open-minded, more quantitative, less qualitative, less ideologically driven, and so on. So the next level of challenge I would see would be to make better hedgehogs. And whatever that may mean, I think it's you know some kind of hybrid we're talking about. But a creature that is comfortable taking on a longer term retroactive and proactive understanding of structure. And that's all a hand wave at this point. Yeah. I don't know if I'm referring to anything. Well, well, let me offer you an example of one of the ways in which tournaments might actually create better quote unquote hedgehogs. Um, in a forecasting tournament, you don't have the luxury that you have in academia of saying, uh, that's not in my field. Uh, so when Jeffrey Sachs was arguing for uh, shock therapy and rapid privatization in the early post-Soviet economies of the early 90s, um, he had a lot of critics saying, he's going, he's going, you're going too fast. And, 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 and later on, he said, well, you know, it, I was right uh, about the economics of rapid privatization, but I was wrong about uh, you know, there needed to be more legal, le a legal system. <laughs> there needs to be more <laughs> illegal. There need, needed more institutions. <laughs> but you know, that, but it, it was almost it was said in almost as an afterthought, uh, as a way of saying, well, I was right about the economics. <laughs> my, my economic analysis was sound, but I missed these other factors that are in, in another field: um, the law, institutions, corruption, culture. Um, I missed that. Or Paul Krugman recently, when he was being interviewed by Fareed Zakaria about the recommendation he made to the Greek population about they should vote no on the, uh, the uh, referendum, uh, the loan referendum. Uh, and he said, well, Zakaria was asking him whether he, he um, had made a mistake. Um, and Krugman said, yeah, I think I did make a mistake. Uh, I think I overestimated the competence of the Greek government. Uh, meaning he didn't think they would be so dumb as not to have a backup plan if, if the, you know, the, the, the European leaders didn't, didn't move. He, he thought it was a, they, were, they were bad game theorists. And he didn't think they would be that bad. He thought they would have a, he thought they would have a very specific well-developed plan B that could be put on the table. They didn't. Um, uh, it's a very funny sort of excuse. Well, it's a, it's a, I mean, I made a mistake, but they made a you know, he, but, but, but what he's, but, but like Sachs, what he's, the, under, the, under, the, the subtext of that is, I'm a great economist. My economic analysis is fundamentally right. Okay, I got a little bit of trivial political psychology wrong. Uh, you know, I, I say Cyprus is, is a, has a lower IQ than I previously thought. Um, but, you know, I, I, big, big deal. I'm still wise. <laughs> I still have good judgment. So what a better hedgehog, forecasting tournaments say to the forecasters, you don't have this luxury of disciplinary compartmentalization anymore. You're going, you're, you're, going, you're going to have to be more integrated in your thinking. And of course, academia um, encourages uh, specialization. I mean, to this point of, of how do we create better hedgehogs, like one of my questions is basically, do we, do we want to make hedgehogs themselves better at integrating other sources of information? Or do we want, in some sense, do we want people to have this like deep disciplinary expertise, and then we have some sort of aggregation mechanism do it statistically rather than inside one head. Do it statistically right. rather than cognitively. Right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting, that, that was an active debate in the, in the IARPA tournament. Yes. Uh, 
um, and it still hasn't been resolved. <laughs> Is it possible that um, you, you talk about a, a group of predictors being sort of like an ecosystem that overlay different ways of reasoning? Is it possible that you want different uh, sort of mixes of uh, cognitive styles to yes. deal with different problems? In other words, uh, if I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen with a totally mechanistic system, like will a bridge fail under a certain stress test or something, uh, wouldn't a mix of uh, structural engineers uh, outpredict a mix of political scientists or something at predicting that? And if, if in the context of uh, complex political future events, the people who are driving reality on the ground are themselves uh, representative of a certain mix, wouldn't you want the prediction market to also sort of mirror that mix? Does that make sense? Yes. Um, I, I think not all forms of diversity are useful. Uh, I, I, I think uh, diversity is useful insofar as it, it brings in a multidimensionality that maps on to the multidimensionality of the problem space. Um, so, um, yes. Um, and no, I don't think the political scientists would do as well on the bridge. <laughs> I know they wouldn't. <laughs> 100% probably.